Eileen. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming back. You are, other than Aaron, the only person to appear on the show twice. Woo! <laughs> well, Sam Fippen, too. Has he been on twice? Yeah. Only okay. twice? So, You've only had Sam twice? I feel like every time you didn't have a guest, you would just be like, hey, Sam. We don't usually do guests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I have some thoughts on your keynote, if you, would, if you are interested in talking about that. Sure. So we are shipping a thing right now that will make Rails new on Windows not work. Who's we? We, <laughs> Rails. The royal we, oh. like you said. Well, I think that we should when we can try to not break other environments, uh, especially after Microsoft. Didn't you work on Microsoft stuff for databases for Windows? They reached out to us to identify some problems with Rails and Windows and offered to like pay for server costs for CI for Windows. Oh, it only went that far. Okay. I thought there was more work that had been done to actually fix the problems. I mean, yes. And then they sent me a laptop so that I could actively try and go fix them. And they've been mostly fixed. The reason I care about it is for like a Rails bridge sort of environment average non-developer person who is trying Rails for the first time, potentially as their first intro into programming, that person is doing it on a Windows machine. And I would like it to not be a thing where Rails developers don't know how to get it working on Windows because it just works. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important too because many years ago I did a mentoring program with students. Stanford put it on. It's Open Academy. So it gets open source mentors involved with with students and all of the students like half of them had windows computers so we then had to do the whole vm setup and they they like didn't want to they wanted to do it the way we have it set up on our laptops and so it was just this sort of painful process of realizing why it doesn't like that doesn't work and then having to like redo all of that work for them and help them get set up and so right. i think that's why sometimes it's important to you should be able to just like at least run Anyway, I mean, it was if originally we added the threaded stuff because for the parallel test, which I guess is what you're referencing, because I said I wanted to support Windows. Well, and, and also, but we're generating a thing that specifically will make your test suite fork by default. So, like, literally, the file that we generate when you do Rails new, if it's generating, you know, a thing in your test helper that says, please parallelize the two workers by forking, Rails new and then rake test on Windows does not work out of the box anymore. And I think that is very bad. Are you talking about parallel testing right now? Uh, yeah, parallel testing. <laughs> but then don't use the fork process parallelizer. Just delete the code. It's just one line. And, and I get that. I'm just saying that we are we are now generating something that doesn't work. It requires changes from what we generate to work on Windows. And I think that I think we should we should fix that. How would All you right, so we could just add a conditional. We added a conditional for the JRuby users that it automatically generates with threads. And that's and, and I think that's an option. That's that's fine to to do that, um, but it also means that uh, any open so like if somebody pulls down, for example, let's say RubyGems.org, which is you know open source, right? They, and, and they're on Windows and they expect to be able to to run the test suite if they're if that test suite is configured to use forks instead of threads. But I think that's something that could be addressed by those people who are maintaining like open source apps like that. I think are the outlier, not the. I, no, and I agree. And, and, and most applications are going to be run on things that emulate their production environment, which is overwhelmingly not Windows. So that's probably fine. But yeah, Rails, Rails new is the, is the main one. So and, and yes, just a conditional to generate it to use threads. Yeah, we can solve this problem. We can. It's <laughs> Rails 6. That's why we're no, I know. doing massive changes. We, 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 should, we should also fix the, uh, the, the system test on threads thing. That, that is definitely a solvable problem. Yeah. So that problem is... Pull request welcome, John. Yeah. I know, I, mean, I know. It was a similar situation to pushing some of the stuff that I pushed for the keynote last year. It was just like, 
ah, this needs to be merged before RailsConf. So <laughs> this is the way that Matthew came up with fixing it. So that's the way we did it. No, I think it's a great. I think it's a great idea. I just I'm also mad at you now because I came to your <laughs> keynote and now I have work to do. <laughs> I also have work to do. Everybody, we all have work to do. I was blissfully ignorant of 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 these issues that I would like to fix. Well, you know, what's funny is that you were one of the people who were like, "Why are you doing a forking parallelizer only?" So I added threads partially because of that. So you're welcome. Thank you. So the downside from your from your talk, the downside of using threads by default is that they don't work with the system test. Is that the only downside, or no? Your code has to be thread safe and okay. Like somebody was actually telling me, I didn't even test this stuff, but action mailer isn't thread safe or something the active, really? active job tests the tests are not thread safe oh by default so we yeah. like there's stuff that we're gonna have to fix threads are not easy the same way like right processes oh it forked multiple databases cool it's done whereas threads rely a little bit more advanced experience with programming right and you have to know like why you might be getting an error here you like rails can only do so much like if your application code is not thread safe then yeah. you're out of luck I do think that um, it is much more likely that application code and probably tests of application code will be thread safe versus like I think thread safety problems are more likely to arise in Rails and in Rails test suite than a, an average application. Right. I don't know. I see lots of code that's like change a class level variable somewhere and assume that that just works. Yeah, I don't. I can tell you that our code in GitHub is not thread safe <laughs> at all. <laughs> I see a lot of tracking instance state at like th- or thread or uh, class level instance state and stuff like that and huh. change it to change behavior at runtime. And it works fine if you are forking everywhere. So it doesn't matter really. Yeah. I mean, it's, we also do, right? We provide like thread local registry, for example. Active support has tools to, to do that same sort of thing in a thread safe manner, like very easily. It's a shame that people aren't more aware of them and reach for class level variables. And like, because even, even if I wasn't planning on deploying something to a, a threaded server, for example, I think using a thread local registry instead of a class variable is just a sort of thing that I would I would do either way, just in case we want to do some thread stuff later. But that's part of the thing. Like, I don't. That's a Rails thing. There's a thread local registry in Rails. Yeah. Okay. I don't know that. <laughs> Like you just mix it in, and then you ha- and you can now get class variables with accessors and setters, but they are uh, per thread. No. Actually, did we didn't we rename it because it was actually fiber local? I don't remember. I don't. Either. Rails is so big. When David said that, no, there's nobody who knows how all of Rails works. He's right. There's parts of Rails that I just refuse to, not really refuse, but I don't want to go over there. Action cable. Uh. <laughs> um, uh, when, no when, comment. <laughs> When David was, was was giving his keynote, he was like, and the size of the blocks are changing. I'm just like, oh, God, no, here it comes. Please don't announce the new feature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that we managed to escape a new feature announcement this year. Well, except from, for the ones I leave. From him? Yeah, I just yeah. announced like two new features. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. A, a, new, uh, a new like... A new action. A, framework. a thing that was a surprise to the rest of the team. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't surprised about Action Cable, but I was working at Basecamp at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. He did talk about it in the chat. It wasn't like a secret. You talked about once the day before. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Old news. So in the talk, you, there were two major things that you announced, which was support for parallel specs or tests out of the box, right? And then the second thing was support for multiple databases in a much more convenient and usable manner than today. So the first one, like I understand way more of what went into that now having watched your talk. But in the past, my experience with that has been like most of the projects I'm I'm on are RSpec, but they're like, 
I don't know, let's try this parallel specs gem. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, we can't do it. But like, what is the what is the difference between the approach that Rails is taking, which I guess is more generic, to the approach that something like parallel tests or parallel specs or whatever takes? Well, I've actually not looked at parallel specs right. or parallel tests. I get how we have test queue, mm -hmm. but that's wrapped into so much stuff that it's like kind of our testing code is a rat king like like an actual rat king <laughs> <laughs> and so it just it like test queue is like tied and we we do stuff you're not supposed to do with mini test like mutate the classes and monkey patch all of these methods in mini test so then when we upgraded from 4.0 to 4.1 everything broke because 4.1 required mini test 5.1 and that entire API was different. And so like, that's what I'm trying to avoid is just like having this need to build things on top of other things on top of other things until you end up with this rat king. And so that's the approach is that we're taking that out so you don't need to do that anymore. And then hopefully you won't build tools around your parallel testing infrastructure because it's not part of your app. You can't just be like, whatever, I'll just change whatever I want. And Technically, TestQ is a gem, but it was written by GitHuber and it's not maintained, really. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of work in our app to make TestQ behave the way we need it to rather than, you know, having improved TestQ. And it's very complicated. It's a really, really complicated setup. And I want all apps to stop being so complicated. <laughs> I do like that. I mean, I, I would always welcome like out of the box things like you mentioned with the system tests, like the big thing that you want to do was make it so you didn't have to use database cleaner. Yeah. And like the minute those came out, I just went around to all my projects and removing database cleaner because it works just fine even with feature specs. So like if you're using um, our spec. So I appreciate that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't that wasn't because I didn't think that like database cleaner was a bad thing or a bad gem or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was just because I didn't want Rails to take on another dependency and people used it because there was a problem with Rails, not because system tests needed database cleaner. Right. It wasn't like I love using database cleaner. It was I need database cleaner. Yeah. And so <laughs> that felt like Rails was doing something wrong. I mean, we tried to fix it so many different ways, but ultimately I fixed it the locking thread way because it, it worked. <laughs> it, it also means theoretically we don't even need separate databases for parallel tests since we can always use transactions all of the time. Yeah, that's potentially true as well. I did the multiple databases for the processes because that's the way we do it in GitHub. And I eventually want to remove all of that code that we have that <laughs> sure. creates all these databases. And I actually think eventually we're not going to need the hooks, not the ones that are internal, but the external ones, mm -hmm. because the work for multiple databases will eliminate the need for those because Active Record will be aware of all the other configurations. Yeah, yeah I guess I wonder if there is any other potential after fork things that people might want to do, but... I don't know. We'll find out. We will. People will open issues, I, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When's Rail 6 coming out? Oh, who knows? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who knows? Probably around the time that David's like, we have a pile of features. Let's release. <laughs> I, would, I would guess that it would be next year at RailsConf. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or if for some reason it wasn't ready the year after. I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take to do the stuff we want to do. Mm -hmm. And at what point we're going to say, okay, this has enough. Are there other things that are on the list of things to do beyond the the white whale that you cited in your in your talk? <laughs> yeah, such a big whale. Um, I want to do the read write splitting API because we do a lot of that in GitHub. Something else we do in GitHub is we have some some of our databases. If they go down, it doesn't take the application down with it. Okay. So I haven't looked a lot at like how we do that, but one of the things I'd like to do is see if there's a way that we can say, oh, okay, the animals database just went down. Don't take the app down. Just don't serve dogs and cats. 
<laughs> Forget those dogs and cats. The read-write API split is like, it's interesting that's becoming a thing because like the very first Rails application I wrote had to interface with an existing database. And the way that that database exposed things to me was like I could read out of the database just fine but I could not write to the database unless I went through a web service. And so I was like, how do I do this? How do I? And it was like, there was no seam to do it. And so then I just made my application read only. And everything was fine. Uh, <laughs> That's a way to do it. Yeah. It's great when you can just have your application not actually do much. <laughs> right. it, makes yeah. it, mu it makes it much easier. Well, Turns out it wasn't that useful of an application, but you know, the second <laughs> application was more useful. Yeah, and it's more secure because you don't have any users writing bad data to your app. Right. Perfect world. That was the other thing too, is like it was like one of the first Rails apps at the company and it was like, I need a user for this database and they were like, Okay. So they gave me a user and then this was for the data I did actually write to my own local database and I was like, Okay, well the user doesn't have rights to create schema or anything. And they're like, Well you don't just tell us the schema you need. And I was like, that's not how it works. I run migrations and it's like we're not gonna give your runtime database user rights to change schema. And I was like, Well, I can actually see where you're coming from there. Like, but uh I need it. <laughs> so I'm glad that over time Rails has become more and more popular and that is not an argument I need to have anymore. But I mean, yeah. I, there, there are reasons. Like, I don't think portraying DBAs as gatekeepers is a fair assessment of what that job is. But we do have uh, most migrations that are written at Shopify do end up getting eyes on it from uh, our data stores team who are basically DBAs. Mostly because, uh, especially in MySQL, there are a lot of schema changes you would want to do, which will do a table level lock for a very significant period of time, which is just an unacceptable for our business. Yeah, I've done that on, on Postgres before, where I write a migration that like runs really quickly locally because there's not a lot of data. Yeah. But then in production, you've locked the table. And yep. if it's a table that is central to the functioning of the application, <laughs> then you've taken down your whole site by yourself. So but, but it's also like these are the people who can give you advice on how to do what you are trying to accomplish and not lock the entire table or make sure that, that we do have good index coverage and are looking at those statistics and making sure that our queries are, are running quickly. Do you guys use LHM at GitHub? Because you're, you're MySQL-based as well, right? We use Ghost, which oh. we wrote. What, are, bo what running, are both of those things? For running migrations. I'm not familiar with Ghost, but LHM is it's Large Hadron Migrator. Um, but basically, it does things like, if you want to change the type of a, of a column, for example, uh, you can't actually do that without locking the table in MySQL. And so what this will do is it sort of it takes the Rails uh, migration API, but it will, it will do it in a way that won't lock the table. So it will, for example, um, create a new column, copy the data over in certain batches, uh, and then once everything is caught up, then actually uh, remove the old column and rename it. It does require more code because it requires, for example, you, it, it's not like super transparent. You still have to make sure that new data is writing both columns, for example. But it, it's the, the mechanism that helps basically backfill. Okay. And Ghost? Yeah, is Ghost similar? is similar to Percona's online schema changer, where I don't know what makes our implementation different from Ghost, but mm -hmm. I know that we wrote our own implementation that basically, however it is written, does not take the database down when you're running migrations. And we also do like all of our migrations through chat ops. So when you write a migration in the, in the Rails app, that's not what's actually run on the production servers. We just maintain those for the local setup and mm -hmm. test setup. Mm -hmm. And then the migration is actually run by Ghost I think it, what it does is it reads the migration and then figures out what the SQL would be and then runs the SQL with... I, I'm i talking out of my ass right now. I really... <laughs> I don't actually know. It does something. I have no idea how it works. I think it, it's similar to the PT online schema changer because it, it does it probably similar to 
what do you call it? LHM. LHM. However it does it, it makes sure it does not take the database down. Right. <laughs> and I mean, the same problem exists for Postgres, just for fewer operations. Right. I feel like I've seen gems that like, I was not familiar with things like LHM. And if tools like that for Postgres exist, then that's cool. But um, I've seen gems that will like raise if you try and do things yeah. that they, in migrations that are locking, which are potentially a good idea. But maybe this is another conversation of things that's like, these are real world concerns of apps when they get to a certain size that maybe Rails should consider what the right generic solution is. Yeah, perhaps. eventually. I agree. Like, it is definitely a problem that there is a point at which the Rails migration infrastructure just literally does not work. And then two of the largest Rails apps out there, neither one are using Rails. Well, we use Rails migrations for stuff that we can, but that we both have home homebrewed solutions is bad. Yeah, we never mi- run a migration on production. Not a Rails migration. Right. We do we do the same thing that, that Derek was just talking about. We, migration will raise if you try and do a thing that requires an, uh, an LHM. And so if it can be done with a Rails migration, then we then we do it. And, and, you know, tests will raise if you try to do something you shouldn't. Yeah, we, we don't have anything that raises. Mostly all migrations go into their own PR and are reviewed by people who are very familiar with database stuff. Yeah. Also not DBAs, but... DBA enough. Sure. Uh, they make I think sh- that's a DBA. Personally. Make sure you get like. Well, I mean, I just mean that they're not certified DBAs. We don't call them DBAs. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I guess you. Can, I guess you can get certified. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, if if that's what. Yeah. Anyway, and then make sure we have the indexes and we're not doing anything weird or right. wrong. We also have a robot thingy that reads the migrations and makes recommendations. Before that, once it gets approved, it goes into the queue and the chat ops runs it. And I think for like stuff like do- dropping tables, we do a temp drop first or dropping full tables we do a temp drop first and then watch to make sure that there's no queries going to it and then do a full drop so temp drop is that just renaming it i think so yeah okay makes sense there's lots of things here that like i thankfully in most of the applications i work on (laughs) the consultant don't have to deal with and i'm thankful for that but then like immediately once you get to a scale of like we actually have real like not just a small amount of data and not big data but we have like a lot of data Right, and once you get to that, I think that's when you start to need to consider these things. And it doesn't take that long. I feel like, like I always appreciate the beginning parts of projects where I'm like, I wrote this migration. Uh, if you have any existing data, it's not going to apply. So just, just reapply all the migrations. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's totally fine because we're not deployed to production. Yeah, um, I don't think it has to do with the volume of data that you have. It just has to do with what when you get to the point where you can no longer tolerate downtime during deploys. Sure. I mean, sure, it is possible for there to be an app that has such a small volume of data that you can actually just lock that table for however long it takes to create the new index, and that's fine. But every production app is at the scale where locking that table means you're going to have some amount of downtime. Yep. I think that the index thing that you mentioned, though, is is very interesting, too, because indexes are, for certain use cases, just a sort of thing where you need to get that right before you deploy it or you just can't fix it. Because, like... Postgres, at least you have create index concurrently, which is cool and, and helpful. But if your write volume is high enough, that will never finish unless right. you actually stop allowing writes to that table for however long it takes for it to catch up. And, and especially like if you are building a social network, for example, uh, where you would have that sort of volume of writes, if you get it wrong, you can't fix it without causing downtime. And, and if downtime is not something you can tolerate, yeah. there's no answer. I feel like Ghost must solve that problem because I have not heard our database team talking about that as an issue. Well, I mean, it just means that your volume of writes is low enough that, I mean, the way you would do it in MySQL is you create a new table with identical schema, copy the data over, index that table, and then and then copy it back. 
It's possible. Uh, it's it. possible that's possible. Doing ghost it. does that. Yeah. I, right. That's probably what it does. Know anything about? Because I don't have to work on Ghost. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. We'll just say it does everything. It's fine. <gasps> yeah, it's cool. it does. It's, ghost is perfect. Everyone should use it. Yeah, but that's that's fundamentally the same. I don't even know if it's open source. <laughs> But it's fundamentally the same thing, right? So it's it's backfilling this data, and it, that requires that the rate at which data is being written to the table is slower than the rate at which you can copy it over to the new table. And right. It, and it is possible for it to be... Like, I wouldn't expect GitHub to have the right volume where you just can't create an index uh, concurrently. But when you do... We'll let you know. Crap. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's also just a massive pain to try and fix it later, even even if you are able to. Yeah. I like the call in your talk of like, look at your apps and figure out like what you're doing to get around what might otherwise be seen as like a shortcoming of what Rails is doing for you. And so I'm kind of looking forward to going through some of the code bases I worked on that are for larger projects and seeing like, what do I do frequently on these projects in maybe a slightly different way, but like the same theme. And so I think that that, will, that, will, that could yield some interesting issues or things to work on. You know, DHH mentioned in his talk that things become Aaron's problem, but I, I've noticed that Aaron's problems really generally become your problems. Yeah, yeah. Rails is just a pyramid scheme. Behind, behind, <laughs> behind every powerful Aaron, there's an even more powerful Eileen. Yeah, I mean, he started the parallel testing implementation. So I think a lot of times with stuff that we work on, he'll like volley it up and then I spike it. Well, you know, it's a little known fact too, though. The Ruby uh, garbage collector actually uh, is just a Slack bot. That goes into a Slack channel that Aaron is the only member of, and he responds to this bot with which memory is safe to free. <laughs> that would not scale well. <laughs> it wouldn't. I'm always interested to see. I, I, I wish more people, when they upgraded to a new version of Rails, tried removing funky stuff they were doing to work around jank. Because we've gotten rid of so much jank in the last few versions. But you don't know what you don't know what's there, right? You don't know what right. like it was written three years ago you don't know that that's to get around some rails thing you just know it's there and it works so you don't touch it right that I mean, is the importance of good commit messages oh, i'm with you i'm with you <laughs> have i told you about this weird mri bug i had no okay but even if you had you should tell the audience sure well we, we, we've discussed it on the podcast they uh, might not have heard it so this weird mri bug so uh luckily this is, is not a thing that affects production for us so crappy workaround was fine but we uh are building some tooling internally that requires given a class object being able to concretely say which file it was defined in uh, and specifically we only care if it came from shopify so step trace point on class definition and if the trace points path starts with the uh, rails root then stick it in hash and that path starts with rails.root it was actually rails.root it was a constant but if path starts with the you know the application directory check was in ci consistently on the final test of the application hanging forever and the fix was to call inspect on the class being defined you know which is in no way related to just a random string representing a file path wow and i can't (laughs) (laughs) that's the appropriate reaction yes i can't even like send a a bug report because i can't reproduce this outside of our ci environment well then i think it sounds like it's your problem you're just gonna have to live with that inspect forever and write a really good commit message around it so that we can try and remove it, or you can try and remove it. Well, it, it <laughs> randomly went away. I'm not sure if it was because it got fixed in 2.4.5, or mm. if it was because adding this other trace point to capture anonymous classes somehow magically fixed it. I haven't had time to just like go check, because it takes 30 minutes to get a CI run going, and I it fixed, and I don't actually care why, but it there was just go. the weirdest, jankiest bug. You mentioned upgrading. Yeah. I know you've been doing a lot of that lately. Yeah. 
So GitHub is currently on 4.2? Yep, we're okay. on 4.2. And that's recent, right? Uh, yeah, I think I merged the, the final gem file flip in on March 13th at 12 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Have you developed any sort of like strategies for to how, how to go about these? Because Sean's mentioned too that like recently they've gotten really good at like at Shopify of like getting like they're on 5.2 yep. now. So I'm cool. so jealous. So like do you get do you have any strategies on how how to ease the transition mm-hmm. for like I'm sure there's a lot of people who listen who are on Rails 3 or Rails 4 or something like that and are looking at the longer you wait the more intense the upgrade tends to be but are there strategies you can share? Yeah, upgrading early and often is really important mm-hmm. because so we had to go from 3.2 to 4.2 because 4.0 and 4.1 were EOL from security. So there was no fix and we had we didn't know what, what vulnerabilities were left in it. So like if you're on 3.2 and you're not getting patches, you're going to patch those yourself. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to go through all of the versions of Rails and figure out what wasn't patched and add those patches so that I could deploy 4.0 or 4.1. Mm-hmm. So we had to like get it all the way to four two before we could actually actually deploy it. So the way I did it was I would do each version, and as soon as I was done with the version and had the build green, I would make it required to mm-hmm. deploy. So then no one could add a regression for four zero. So mm-hmm. then I could focus on four one. Once I finished four one, I took out the four zero build and put in the four one build and mm-hmm. said, "You now have to write four one code." Mm-hmm. So that prevents regressions for each one. So that by the time we got to four two, it was one of the easiest four one to four two was one of the easiest upgrades that we did. 4.1 was hard because of the mini test and test queue stuff. And that was all of that was all our fault. Like that's not to say like mini test was doing anything wrong. We were doing stuff we were not supposed to do. We're still doing it because Aaron and I did not want to rewrite our <laughs> test framework mm-hmm. while trying to upgrade Rails. So upgrading early so you don't end up having to skip major versions because those versions are EOL'd and vulnerable to all sorts of nefarious activity. And to like i so we don't do this yet at github but i think that eventually the plan is that upgrades are everyone's responsibility yeah. not one team because then everyone knows how to upgrade not just upgrade rails but if you're not having everyone do the upgrades then only one person at that time or that one or that one team knows what to look out for right and so it's going to make your job as a non-upgrader harder if you're not doing upgrades it's All also just a crap job. Like if you want to yeah. churn, if you want, if you want to make sure that you churn specific employees, make them the ones responsible for Rails upgrades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not doing the next one. We're hiring Test Double to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very similar to our strategy at Shopify, though. Um, that was one of the biggest things for us was making sure it was clear messaging that the Rails team is not responsible for Rails upgrades. Everybody in the company is responsible for making sure that the code that they own is upgraded. We're responsible for kicking it off. Like what we do is we. We get it to the point where like the app will boot. It might not serve much successfully, but to the point where the, the test suite runs and there are some tests that are green. So um, at, And that's the point where we then write to a file all of the tests that are failing, basically have a, a thing marked as uh, failing on, on Rails next. You know, At this point, we will have the two parallel builds. And once, we, once we're at the point where we can do that and is reasonable for somebody who is writing new code to be able to make it work on the next version of Rails, that's the point where, okay, cool, we have marked all the tests that are currently failing. Uh, you are not, and when I say you're not allowed, like, yeah, sometimes people are going to be, I need, you know, this is not something I know how to fix and I need to deploy the feature. I'm going to mark this test as failing and that's whatever. But generally speaking, at that point, even before we've gotten the build green, we make it uh, unacceptable generally to add new tests that are not working on both. In this case, it was 5.1 and 5.2. 
it also seems like if you're the only one, if you cede that responsibility to somebody else to say like, oh, they're going to upgrade the app that you miss out on an opportunity to learn like what has changed and yeah. why and why it might be helpful to know that going forward. Like, yeah, you might discover like, oh, okay. I don't know. I'm trying to think of an example, but like, I don't know. You might, you might discover something new that like, yes, I have to update this code in this way in order to make it build on this new version of Rails. But it also means that I can change this stuff that I was doing before that wasn't ideal doesn't need to change but i can get rid of code now like that yeah kind of yeah. Thing. yeah and the other thing that we do and i'm pretty sure you do it at shopify too is we actually have both versions of rails in all the branches in master branch and and yeah. all of those instead of having a upgrade branch because i'm not going to deal with everyone else's merge conflicts every day <laughs> right like that's just with the github size that wouldn't it just wouldn't scale it wouldn't work it would be frustrating every day to find that like this code doesn't merge cleanly into the rails upgrade branch so we have everything in the app in, on master so that you just switch with an environment variable. And that way, uh, all of the code you fix, you conditionally change it. Yep. I don't know how you do the actual gem file stuff. We have a hacked version of Bundler because Bundler doesn't support what we need to have these multiple gem files that we can switch between. Um, I'm we not- actually have the conditional in our gem file. And then uh, just two gemfile.locks. And then we pick the, the gemfile.lock based on the environment variable. And then just a bot that makes sure. Well, actually, we, so you, you never run bundle directly in Shopify. We have dev up, which does the same thing. And dev up will flip the environment variable and run bundle twice to make sure that both gem files get. Yeah, I wasn't the one who added the hack. So maybe maybe we're at a point that we can do it better. But we don't, we vendor all of our gems and it's like this whole thing. Actually, one of the funny things we found was because of the way Minitest will just load any plugin that's in the path. <laughs> um, when I started doing the 5.0 upgrade, it found the Rails plugin and loaded it in 4.2, which then <laughs> broke builds that ran after the 5.0 build on that box. That's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually fixed in a new version of Minitest. So. But again, we couldn't, we couldn't upgrade to that version because of the mutating of the Minitest stuff that right. we do. So getting rid of that is going to be a very important part of upgrading. I think that like upgrading is hard, not because of Rails, but because of all of the crap that we add to our apps that shouldn't be there in the first place that then breaks in versions of Rails. Like if you're doing vanilla Rails and doing standard things, you're going to have a deprecation warning. You're going to know what's going to break. And it's not as hard as, oh, this thing that was written 10 years ago just doesn't work at all on this new version of Rails. And it's because it's touching all of these private APIs mm-hmm. that it should have never been touching. But people aren't touching private APIs because they want to cause problems. It, it, it's because that was the only way to accomplish whatever needed to get done. I mean, ideally, yeah, sometimes people are just using private APIs for stuff that's possible on public APIs. Or they just but... didn't know it was private API. It's like a yeah, API. that is a thing that... I don't know that I've ever like just told somebody, no, our definition of private API is up here in our documentation. I don't know that I've ever had said that to somebody and had them not be surprised by that. Yeah, and that I don't think that our, oh, it's undocumented is necessarily the best mark of this is private because... I don't know. How, it's too if, easy to accident. Like, are you going to yeah. go check the docs for every method you ever call? Yeah, and then we have like all of these files that will be no docked at the top, but then like in the middle, it will like document one method and then <laughs> the rest of it will be no docked. And it's like all just mashed together. And it's hard to sometimes figure out which ones are actually not documented. Well, then here's a question for you. If a method is public API, but the class that that method returns is no docked, is anything you can then do with that method public API or not? Like reflection is a good example of this. We have a bunch of public API methods to get a reflection object, but the reflection object is not technically public API. 
Mm. Those are pretty stable, though. Yeah, no, I mean, the answer for that one is definitely reflection really just should be public. But I'm trying to think of some other cases. There have been a bunch of cases that I've noticed. I just went through an upgrade from 5.1 to 5.2, not a big upgrade. And then what I noticed was like in the app we're doing, we have a lot of like query objects and it does, uh, I forget exactly how the syntax is, but it's like I pass a relation to where that I call exists on inside that where block or something like that. And it worked fine in 5.1 and 5.2. It still worked, but it got a deprecation method saying like active record no longer delegates those directly to ARL. Uh, so to enumerable, you mean? To ARL. Anyway, oh, there's a deprecation about that. Coming, oh, yeah. this is coming. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Because, yes, right. Because of like, there might be some confusion. You might be thinking you're calling enumerable when you're calling whatever. Right. So I was like, all right, I don't know how to get around this, and so I just like went through the code in Rails, and I was like, okay, but how do I how do I do what I need to do here? And so then I just called dot arel dot exists, and right. I don't know if that's private API or not. It but is. That's an arel itself is private API. Right. But so there was a method there that I could call, and I was like, well, I did it. And if they may get private API, if they break it, then we have tests, and it'll be caught. Well, now that you mentioned. That, so it's actually funny that specific thing is exactly why we deprecated the delegation to arel because people thought that there was an exists method not with the question mark but exists like sql exists people thought that that method was a thing that existed on relation that was just part of the rails api when it wasn't we delegated to arel because i think it probably made something internally easier once but it was leading to people accidentally thinking that this api basically well, depending on arel and not even realizing it Right, I had no idea that was an ARL method, but it doesn't. But it works, so I'm going to continue doing it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to go delete that method. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The dot ARL method. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh. I don't know. It's it's tricky, like because there's not any great way for us to communicate what is or isn't public API. Because we have methods that that need to be public in Ruby that we don't want to make part of our public API, and we also have methods that are private in Ruby that we do want to make part of the public API gonna have to call send everywhere inside rails <laughs> we could do that and actually that actually if we could just not have things be public that aren't public api and just use send more that would help prefix them with underscore if we use send they will use send yes <laughs> at least then the difference for me though is now you are acknowledging okay yeah no i know i'm depending on a private api versus oh i didn't realize that was private api like I just copied some code, and I figured if it was private, like I would have gotten a privacy error. Whatever the error that gets raised when you attempt to call a private method is, I actually don't know what that class is called. Yeah, I, I just think that that's not going to stop the use of private APIs. No, but I guess the, well, the other point then is, right, back to the original thing I was trying to say, part of it is just we aren't providing public APIs for the things that a lot of people are trying to do. Right, and so we should provide more. Yes. All right, good solution. If only, if only somebody were working on multiple database support, which is a thing that I find frequently causes uses, uh, usage of private APIs. <laughs> yeah, if only. Good thing that we are. Yeah. <laughs> One upgrade strategy that I've liked, and we, I did it first on a project that I worked on with Sean when we were like waiting on Rails 4.0 or 4.1. I can't remember what it was, but like there was stuff that was going to be in there that we knew either wasn't... I don't remember if it was going to be like, oh, this is going to get deprecated and replaced with this in Rails 4.0. And so instead of just like waiting for that or like putting a conditional in the code that says like if it's this then run that we just like monkey patched Rails three two to have Rails four O stuff. Like active model model. We yeah. were like, yeah, we just want active model model model, model whatever. No, and that's we want it fine. today and we do it and fine by. I remember like yep. being like, Okay, we want fine by now and then wrapping that in a thing that says like if it's already defined, raise. And so that way when we do the upgrade, it's like, Oh, we gotta remove this module. This would happen a lot in our app and raising isn't a good way to do it because 
then you're, you're, you have you, to have coverage. You can't know, but you can't get your build to build because your build for four two or four one or whatever will be raising. Right. And so I had to like ended up deleting all of this code that was supposed to be like helpful. Oh. I put that in quotes for those who are listening in and can't see me. Uh, <laughs> that was supposed to be helpful as like, oh my god, like take this out. But because we're running two versions at once, I yeah. can't take it out. So I just had to like delete it and then instead wrapped it in a conditional of only load it if right. it's rails 3.2 yeah. and then that yeah. way when we were done and had finished 4.2 i just deleted like four thousand lines of code and the difference there being like a world where i assume the upgrade is something that we can do just like that and it's like one change right. and we upgrade and the difference being like this is a process and it's going to take yeah. a few days or a week or whatever you are so or, optimistic or three months <laughs> uh, or uh, a year for 5.0 for us the rails upgrade for for github from 3.2 to 4.2 took a year and three months Wow! Congratulations. <laughs> um, and yeah, and we so we have a specific method like Shopify Rails Next, or I think we just call it Shopify Next because we reuse all this infrastructure when we're upgrading other stuff. And then we just have a script to go delete any code that is inside of that conditional. And if there's an else branch, unindent the else branch that we run basically when we're done. And then that that and then that you know that leads to the files that have the because that's a thing we commonly do is is if it, if it is just something that that we can backport. Then we do that in a monkey patch with, unless Shopify.rails next, and then it just gets deleted by the bot when when we're all done. Yeah, I mean, the, also the other way to handle that is if you're on like three two right now, you are or should be on a forked version of Rails because you're not getting security updates. So one of the ways that I've dealt with stuff like that with upgrading is if I if we're already forked, not adding new features to the forked version, but I will backport mm-hmm. known fixes from what, the next version so that. I don't have to write conditionals in the code. Yeah. But as of 5.0, we'll be off a of fork, and I'm going to keep it that way. <laughs> so, If you're on a uh, version earlier than 4.2, you should probably also be subscribed to the uh, Rails security mailing list to make sure that you are getting backports of every uh, any CVEs. That you occur. should be subscribed to that anyway. I, I suggest that for like It's everybody. useful to be subscribed to. Yeah, yeah. Or, or pay the long-term support right, Rails but y- fork. You want to make sure that that, I mean, I don't know how timely they are. Like, yeah, I don't know either. It's a thing that I think is probably worth just being aware of. Because there's a reason, right? So there's, that we, this is, um, I don't know anything about this. This is like a company that provides a fork. Yeah, they, you can pay them yeah. and they backport security fixes. It's pretty older version of Rails. <laughs> uh, but like, there's a reason that every vulnerability announcement, we include a dot .patch file. But what does that dot .patch file apply? It applies to it's whatever the whatever the fi- fix was, and I think it, we include the dot .patch file for every version that we backported the bug fix to. Right. So you can take the one the for oldest the oldest patch, one right. and try to apply it, see if it applies cleanly or not. Right. Uh, and if it doesn't, hope you know you have the context to try and backport it yourself if you can't upgrade. I don't remember. Do they like when a new v- vulnerability is released? Do they only go back to like the supported version? Like, do they only say like we confirm that it's vulnerable in whatever last supported release, or do they go back and check older versions of Rails to say like it's also? There have been rare cases where we've gone and even actually released patches for unsupported versions, but unless it's like a ridiculously the world is on fire level of security vulnerability, it is whatever our supported versions are. That's all we check. Cool. It is reasonable to assume that anything older than the oldest version that had the vulnerability is also vulnerable. It's a safe assumption, anyway. <laughs> Should we ask you about anything else? What are you excited about working on these days? Mostly Rails, the Rails stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just getting the footprint of our application for GitHub to a point where it just isn't doing like all special stuff <laughs> <laughs> uh, is is a huge undertaking. And finding like other areas where we might be 
doing things that are, are beneficial to other people, not necessarily as like directly upstream. Like all of the parallel testing and multiple database stuff is not the ideas are taken from GitHub, but most of the code is not because the code was like written to work around a problem. Whereas when in Rails, we want to work with the problem. That's a good way to put it. Should we wrap up? Yeah, I have, I have a thing that I'd like to say before we do, though. Okay. Um, yes. Eileen is a person who really does drive a lot of the important feature development on Rails. I don't think you get enough credit for how much you're doing for the project right now. So I just want to personally say thank you. And everybody should pay more attention to what you're doing. And I would like to encourage all of our listeners to reach out and say thanks to Eileen as well, because she is doing a lot to keep the project alive right now. So thank you. Thanks. That's sweet <laughs> of you, Sean. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Eileen. Thank you. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.